So this, this evening I want to carry uh, further the message that I started last night about uh, embracing the truth and embracing this uh, reality of what it means to be alive and all of the work that we did today around compassion and feeling and learning how to be with what is, what's happening. So tonight I want to further the discussion and talk uh, about understanding the cause. Understanding the cause of suffering. What is the cause of suffering? And how do we get ourselves into this what seems oftentimes like a vicious cycle of suffering about a wide range of things. To some degree, mostly suffering about the pain that we want to avoid or change or control or get out of. And reflecting on the work that you've done today, seeing that actually the pain maybe isn't as bad as you thought and there can be a sense of it's manageable and this is sort of the issue at hand. This is the condition. So the Buddha very much talks about causes and conditions. And the whole structure of the Dharma, the whole structure of really reality is based on conditions and causes. And so last night and we, I spoke in many great detail about the conditions that we find ourselves in, the vulnerable conditions and the pain and the difficult experience. And because conditions are impermanent, because conditions are changing, uh, and because conditions are painful and difficult and challenging, and because we take the conditions that we're in to be so personal, so personal, we create a self who suffers about the conditions, that what arises out of these conditions is suffering. And so we suffer about a lot of these experiences that we find ourselves in. And so the great hope and the great promise of the Dharma is that you can end suffering. You don't You don't have to suffer about what's happening. But if we're going to get into this strategy or this game, if we're going to take on this task of ending suffering, we really have to understand the causes of it. And we have to understand how it works in the mind. We have to understand how it works in our direct experience so that way we can overcome and we can learn how to um, understand to some very basic level, is this a condition that I find myself in? Is this just dukkha? Is this just how things are? Or is this something that I'm creating in my mind? Am I manufacturing misery and disappointment and frustration and anger and fear about the conditions? And I think the great challenge of the Dharma and the great challenge that we face one moment at a time in our experience is trying to understand the difference between the two. And so we're constantly in every moment coming into 
contact with that. And we come into this, uh, again, the teachings of the Buddha are ehipasako, come and see for yourself. And the Buddha is inviting us into our experience and saying, do you see how you're creating suffering for yourself? Can you see it? And so again, we find ourselves coming right into the direct contact, the present time reality of the push and pull of our own consciousness. The push and pull towards the struggle with reality, the war with reality, this conflict we have with the conditions, that I've got to get more of these types of conditions, I want more of the pleasant conditions, I got to get more of those conditions, so I got to pull those in, and I have to get rid of the unfavorable conditions that I don't want. And it's not about the conditions, it's about what is the system in place that's driving the engine of that? What is it that is pushing and pulling? It's this very subtle experience that's driving this push-pull. That's the greed that is trying to pull in the favorable conditions. And it's the hatred that's trying to eliminate and destroy the unfavorable conditions. And we don't see, again, this ground that I spoke about the first night. The ground. This is the ground. Conditions are the ground. We live in what's called the conditioned realm. Everything is conditioned based on other conditions. And if we're going to go to war with conditions, we're probably going to get our asses kicked much along the way. And so the encouragement and the practice is to really start to embrace the conditions, understand the conditions, and to start to understand what is it that's causing me to get continually trapped into this experience of push and pull and got to have and got to get rid of. The greed and the hatred. And of course, the almighty delusion that promises you if you actually could succeed at this strategy that you would arrive in some permanent state of happiness, absence of absence of pain, absence of loss, of disappointment, that somehow if you did it right, if you just did it right, you would arrive into that kind of an experience. And the delusion that that's possible. And the mind is so good at convincing us that this is possible. It's like, to me, I'm overwhelmed and I almost bow at the masterful ways in which my mind can trick me and to convince me into thinking that I can pull this task off even though I have no evidence to suggest in my history that that is the case. And so we see that these conditions are changing, they're difficult, they're not me. That I am in this moment, you are just the, in this moment we are all just the accumulation of many, many conditions that came together and allowed for this moment to arise. That's it. 
Right, so we just all have arisen here in this experience. And now we start to look at some of the ways in which we're causing suffering for ourselves because of the fact that we're unable to see the ground. And so it's all about understanding the second noble truth, that craving is the cause of suffering. And this repetitive craving that the Buddha says, this repetitive craving that obsessively indulges in this and that and the other. It arises dependent upon conditions. And it's obsessively, repetitively indulging and in trying to create an experience that would be more favorable than this experience. And for me, in a, on a very psychological and a very sort of existential way, I experience this craving as the moment when I'm wanting other. It's a very common experience. I'm sure you've had many times. It's a very not so difficult experience to be mindful of. But you find yourself in an experience, in a moment, in a context of present time experience, and you want something else to be happening. And so the Pali term that the Buddha uses is this word called tanha. Tanha, which translates often as an unquenchable thirst, an insatiable urge, a craving, uh, a, quench, a thirst, a type of wanting that can never actually be satisfied by its very nature. All it can do is want more. This is also, as the work I do in the States, working with drug addicts, this is how I define the word addiction. To some degree, I feel that the Buddha's path is the best addiction treatment program ever made. Because this word tanha, to me, is really translates really quite well as addiction. It's a wanting, it's an indulging, it's an obsession that can never actually provide you the promise that it gives you. And there's a saying that goes along with it. I forget who said it, but I really like it because it feels very true to me. You can never get enough of something that almost works. Tanha craving, repetitive. You can never get enough of it because it almost works every time. Almost. I was almost happy right there for just that one moment. I just, I just didn't crave hard enough. I just didn't want it enough. I'll make it up on the next go around. Right? It's a very common experience to be in it's not that challenging to notice, but it's very difficult to unhook from. It's not so easy to break free from that. It's not necessarily that simple because it carries with it such a strong, convincing delusion. It's almost like the part of the mind that tells you, you should totally listen to me 
because I fucking know exactly what you need right now. And you go, really? You think? And it's like, yeah, totally, absolutely, just, I got it. And you're like, okay. And you get, your, you get burned. And you're like, damn it. 27 minutes of the 30 minutes set, gone. Got me again. Right? And so we work with this. This is, I'm going to unpack this a little bit. How do we come to understand how this actually works? And so to make things a little bit simple and to try to break this down a little bit, the Buddha uses a list. He's a big fan of lists, as am I. And then he talks about there's really three forms in which this craving comes into being. And the first one is really the most obvious one. It's just the craving for stimulation. It's the craving for sensory pleasure. Craving to eat something, craving to think something, craving to feel something, craving to... Just that very, really biological, basic instinctual drive that's a, a form of craving for some sort of stimulation at the sensory level. Right. And so this is the one that's really good to work with in the context of a retreat like this because of the fact that we're mostly sitting with the eyes closed, so there's no seeing craving happening because your eyes are closed. Really no smelling or tasting craving happening because there's not a lot of stimulation there. Sound, we're using sound as a way, so you're probably not craving too much at the auditorial level, so that's mostly good. But which gate shows up to provide the necessary craving? The mind. The mind comes down and says, tells you there's something else you could be doing right now. And, and it pulls us in. It, it, it kind of, it's sticky. It, it comes down and it, it kind of attaches to your attention and says, come with me for a moment. And you're like, all right, well, this, my legs hurt and it's kind of hot in here and I'll just go with you for a second see what you got to say. And then the mind takes us into this. Uh, you could make this plan. You could do this thing. You could... Uh, Go into town, you could probably get a pizza, you could maybe go online and get a plane ticket the fuck out of here. Or, you know, there's lots of things. The mind has endless, endless things that you could do. It will never run out. Have you noticed your mind never runs out of stuff? Have you ever been sitting in meditation and your mind's like, I got nothing? I'm just gonna leave you alone. I have nothing for you to think about right now. I'm out. Fresh out of ideas. Has that never happened ever, ever once to anybody, ever? Maybe, I don't think so. It's just always got new material to work with, and if it doesn't, it'll throw you some old material. It'll come in with the low blow. For me, the low blow on retreat is a movie or a cheeseburger or some really basic sensory pleasure that I could have, and my mind comes in with the real, it's a real low blow, too, because it knows I'm vulnerable to this. <laughs> Which is why when I go on retreats in America, I almost never drive my own car there. I get dropped off at the retreat, so I can't leave. <laughs> so you got to watch out for the low blow. <clears throat> so this is the first kind of craving. This is sort of the just sort of pesky, annoying mind craving that probably shows up a lot more than you would like to even admit. 
which is why you're all laughing as I say this, because you've seen it a thousand times today. And then the, the craving becomes more, uh, the, other types of, the other two types of craving become a little bit more subtle. And they're about a craving to become. Uh, so it's, this is sort of the craving to be or not to be. Uh, the craving to be, uh, and also when I talked about the, the Buddha saying that we're preoccupied with our place, and we delight and revel in the place. This is the type of craving that is trying to uh, imagine or create or provide another experience that you could be having, but you're not having. It's this experience where we give rise, and what arises is this imagined moment, experience, decision, choice, plan, idea, and the mind starts to sort of com contrast and compare. It's like, well, you could be doing this, but you're not, you're doing this. And, it's, and then we start to think that we should become that other experience. And how do we become that other experience? Well, first I gotta do is I gotta get out of here and I gotta, and so you think about it, you plan about it, you get hooked into it and then you realize, well, actually I'm gonna be here for four more days, so I really can't do any of this right now. And then it has that becoming thing sort of dies a natural death as it does, as it's impermanent in and of itself. It dies a natural death, it falls away and you're stuck back into the present time experience and maybe you feel a, a slight sense of disappointment or uh, whatever you feel. And so you just kind of went on this little ride, it's craving to become something, to be this other person in another place doing another thing. So it's a wanting quality, wanting uh, other experience to have. Or it might even just be wanting the experience of the retreat to be different. It might be very subtle. It might just be, actually, it would be fine to be here if my legs didn't hurt. It would actually be fine to be here if my back didn't hurt. In fact, if I wasn't thinking so much, the retreat would actually be great. <laughs> so it, 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 it will go down on the lowest level possible. It will do what it can to grab you away. This craving. And then there's the, the flip side of that craving, which is the craving to not become. And it's a, it's a craving sometimes for non-existence. It means that there's something happening right now that really needs to go away. Or it's even more subtle, it's a part of myself that I really don't like. And it's this craving, you know, if I could just get rid of that part of my experience, if I could just be less like this, then I would actually be okay. If I could just not be that, if I could just not have the wandering mind that I have, if I could just not have, if I could just get rid of this one thing. And so we indulge in that, we, we obsess in that, we become preoccupied in that, and we, we crave and we so wish and so want this part of our experience to be gone and to go away. And that's the, the hatred or the aversion or the needing to be gone. And so I, I, I would probably bet good money that you have seen all these forms of craving in your mind 
since you've been here. And to some degree having some level of some respect or uh, some understanding, okay, this is, this is really uh, how it is in my mind. This is, this is the craving the Buddha is speaking of. This is, this is actually happening for me. And again, to not use this as another arena to give yourself a hard time. If you're seeing this happening, it means you're practicing really quite well. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. In fact, it mostly means that you're doing everything right. Because you're seeing. The Buddha said, come and see. Look, do you see this happening? Do you see the cause? Do you see where this leads you? Do you really want to encourage this? Do you want to encourage this? And so this is also the way the Buddha talks about karma. Do I want to cultivate this type of karma? And so we start to work with it. We start to practice with it. We start to become willing to unhook from it and go back to uh, the breath again. All right, I guess I'll go back to the breath. But when we see the destruction and we see the anguish and the mental suffering that can arise dependent upon this type of craving, you might actually start to consider that your breath is a pretty damn good thing to pay attention to. And that sounds are good things to pay attention to. And to be with your body. Because sounds, breathing, body, they don't do any of that. Has your breath ever done anything to you that was even remotely harmful? And then when we come into contact with it, we think it's boring and it's just so like this. And so we go with the mind. Let's go, with, let's go see what the mind has to say. And again, you can never get enough of something that almost works. Because you're sitting here thinking about something, you're like, oh, this is, this is a good one. Oh, yeah, I got it. I'll figure it out now. You know, write this down. And if you reflect on your experience in the last few days, is there anything that really happened in your mind that was all that important at the end of the day? Couldn't you have let most of it actually go? And so I have a formula, a very basic mathematical equation to help us understand this in a very basic way, in a very pragmatic way. And it simply says, if only X, then Y. If only this were true, if only I had this, if only I got rid of that, if only this, then I would be much better off and I would be happy. It's called, I call it the if-only mind, right? That shows up constantly, and we just notice it. If only this, then that. If only this, then that. And so if we look at it, I know that in my life, I've, I've had lots of experience where I thought to myself, if only this, and actually have gotten it. If only this but I never get the other piece. 
well, part of my, my addiction was also very much tied into uh, being in, in, in bands. I was in a, in, in a former life, in one of my many lifetimes that I've had in this particular life. For about 10 years, I was involved in a, in a band that actually was very successful at one point. It was a sort of a ska punk reggae band. And um, we played and we made records and we got successful and we got to tour. And, and I was getting all of the things that I really craved. I was uh, starting to really get a lot of the stuff that I told myself, if I only had this, then I would be happy. And I, if I only got a record deal, if my band got a record deal, I would be happy. And I got a record deal. And if only we could tour uh, Europe and play these huge festivals outside, then I would be happy. And I got that. If only I didn't have to work a shitty job and could just actually make money playing music, and then I got that. And if only I could just drink and do drugs every day without anybody pestering me about it, then I would be happy. And then I got that. Right. And if only I could get the love and attention of many, many people, and everybody would pay attention to me and give me the praise and the attention that I want, then if I had that, I would be happy. And I got that. And I remember standing... I remember having, and I'd been practicing the Dharma actually for about 10 years also during this whole trip, which was a very interesting experience. Sort of knowing better and going, yeah, but I'm really, really actually believing the craving delusion mind. And I knew the Dharma, I knew everything that I'm saying tonight, I kind of already knew. But I was just hedging my bets that, the cra that I was going to be the guy who actually got the craving thing to work out. <laughs> Everybody else just didn't try hard enough. And I'm pretty fucking clever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get it. I'm going to prove the Buddha wrong. <laughs> Craving is not the problem. Not getting what you crave, that's the problem. And I said, I'm going to get what I crave, and I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. And I did. I got all of it. And then a little bit more even, which I won't get into those details because they're another time, another place. And I remember standing on stage at this huge festival, drunk, high, nice day, huge crowd, and standing on stage and playing my guitar and going, this fucking sucks. <laughs> In my mind being like, dude, you, I don't even like, you're just a bad person, I hate you. And I looked around at my bandmates and I was like, I fucking hate these guys. <laughs> and one of, my, the other, one of the guys in the band would get drunk all the time and play the, the guitar parts wrong. And I looked at him and he's like jumping around playing the wrong chords and it sounds bad. <laughs> and people are like having a good time and I'm just like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm like trying to shut that down. I'm like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. No, this is good, this is good, this is good, be quiet, be quiet. If I had this sort of, I'd been practicing long enough that I developed enough of wisdom that would swoop in once in a while and ruin my party. And, um, and so for the next couple weeks after that, I really suffered a lot because I was really, really coming, having to come to terms in a very, very real way that happiness is not dependent upon external conditions. And, and the, just the bummer of that, that actually we don't know that. Your happiness is not dependent upon external conditions. Not even kind of. 
and we live in a world and a culture and a time and a place where you know the modern world basically promises you that actually happiness totally dependent upon external conditions. Got to have the right job, got to live in the right city, got to make the right amount of money, got to have the right partner, drive the right car. Got to have you actually if you don't have the right external conditions then you're just, you know, going to be miserable. The capitalist consumer I mean, I'm from America, so that's what I see, but I'm sure all of us live in a first world situation where this is kind of what we're fed. And for me to have to really, and also I had to, not only did I have to come to terms with that, but I also had to come to terms with the fact that drugs and alcohol weren't really panning out anymore. And I remember, I'll never forget that day, I was just sitting on a, on a bench in a, somewhere in, in Holland, in Amsterdam, and I... I just was really, really replaying it out in my mind. I'm like, I'm like, this is really, really what I'm looking for literally cannot be out there because I spent a decade really trying very hard to arrange the conditions of the world so they suited all my cravings and I succeeded and actually not only did they not work, but I actually hate myself and the world. Not only did they not work, but I'm tragically unhappy. And coming to terms with this experience. And I think that we all have, maybe not as extreme as my example, but we all find that a lot of times we get, we get burned by this, don't we? And so if happiness is not dependent upon external conditions, but actually my happiness is dependent upon my, the quality of my mind, is it dependent upon the quality of my awareness, the quality of my heart, the quality of my mind, that actually happiness really turns out to be an inside job. And all of this becoming and all of this not becoming and all of this craving and all of this better place to be in, you can't do any of those things really. There's a great book uh, called The Island, which is uh, written by Ajahn Amaro, who's a really famous English Thai forest master who's really quite brilliant and revered in, in most of the insight tradition. He wrote a book called The Island, and where the Buddha, the whole book is about the Buddha's teachings on liberation. And, and the, the reason the book's called The Island is he talks about actually our experience in our body, in our mind, in our emotions in our present time reality, being an island that you can't go beyond. It's like this island of experience where we're kind of in our own experience out in the, we're kind of on the deserted, deserted island of ourselves, right? And if you think about the analogy of being stuck on a desert island, right, where there's just not much happening, your happiness can't be dependent upon external conditions because there aren't any. And you could probably have a wonderful life and you could probably do really quite well on that desert island by yourself, couldn't you? And you could also really probably suffer really badly. And so what, the, what we start to realize is we can't go beyond the moment. We can't go beyond the experience that we're having. So if we can kind of start to see this being the case, then we might be more invested and more interested in trying to actually improve the nature and the quality of the awareness that we have.
Because if I improve my internal life, if I improve the quality of my own awareness, the quality of my mind, of my heart, of my intentions, of my views, then actually everything changes. The whole world changes. There actually turns out there is no out there. There's no such thing as an out there. There's only in here. But of course, consciousness and the way the mind works, we broadcast this idea of there being an external world and we, we're searching all over the place to get what we want and we don't realize that actually what we're looking for is actually right here. It's been here the whole time and we overlook it. Like I said the first night, we don't see the ground. We overlook what's right in front of us trying to find a better than way to be, a moment to be and thing to have, to get, to become. And we start to maybe consider, maybe there's a richness to the present moment. Maybe there's a richness to life that I've been missing out on because I've been looking for it somewhere else. And so we start to investigate the cause here. We start to maybe at this point become very interested in how this works. And so one of the things that is also very important, I think, to distinguish in this particular conversation is that there's actually quite a huge difference between desire. So sometimes desire gets a bad reputation in Buddhism, where a lot of times people confuse desire and craving. And if you look at a, book, a Buddhist book that was written, you know, more than 10 years ago, oftentimes it'll say desire is the cause of suffering. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth. So when we look at, there's a huge difference between desire and craving. And desire, for the Buddha, in the way that he talks about it from a psychological and an ethical point of view, desire is considered to be ethically neutral, meaning that desire doesn't have a, a qualitative um, sense of uh, being wholesome or unwholesome. It's just there. In fact, Arjun Amaro often talks about, he says that desire is the natural energy of this realm. And so if we look at our direct experience and we start to feel into what it means to be alive, we see that desire is definitely a very, very strong force. And to some degree, we might notice it's probably the strongest force that we have. And it's not bad or wrong. It's just there. It's just there. It's like a clean slate. It's what we do with the desire system that makes a difference for us in terms of are we heading towards, are we using our desire system to motivate us and to pull us into the direction of liberation? Or are we using the desire system to pull us into the experience of suffering? So everything is really about desire and how do we use it properly. So they're not the same. And a lot of times people think that a craving is an expression of desire. So we think oftentimes that desire is there and as I turn the volume of desire up, it turns into craving. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. They're actually very different experiences. And not only... Craving is not only not an expression of desire, 
But desire in and of itself is about our deeper desire to be free. And craving actually robs us from that. And so when we start to see how the relationship between desire and craving work and how we can hold that, we start to see if we go back to the embracing the truth and embracing the reality of desire, a lot of times we see that there's a lot of pain around certain desires not having been met. And maybe at parts of our lives we've, we've had desires that were not bad or wrong, they were perfectly appropriate. The desire to be cared for by our parents, the desire for love, for connection, for safety, all of these desires are good and necessary and really quite needed. But some of us have been through the experience of that not having been the case. And so what happens when, the, when there's a pain of a desire not being fulfilled or met in a certain way, you all know what comes to the rescue. Craving. Craving says, you don't have to feel the pain of this unmet desire. You don't have to be in the disappointment and the loss. Just do this. Right? It, 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 craving is, uh, again, in, in, in it's massive trickery. So part of the uh, compassion that we cultivate here today and part of the empathetic, ethical component of, of the practice is trying to have some degree of tolerance and some compassion and some patience around the fact that uh, some of our desires might be totally appropriate and some of our plans and things that we want to become and things that we want to do in this world are totally good and appropriate and it's fine to pursue them. But if they're not panning out in the timeline or in the ways in which we like, we oftentimes find that we uh, craving will come in and try to medicate the pain of that or try to come in and do something with that. So we want to be able to see, uh, because I don't want you to hear me say that all of these uh, desires to want to do things and to be a certain person and to be a certain way and to have a good relationship. There's nothing wrong about these things. They're really actually quite important. But we have to look at how do we hold them? How do we be with the experience of not getting what we want? Again, back to the first noble truth, the Buddha Dukkha, not getting what you want. Sometimes we don't get what we want and desires, they don't come to fruition in the way that we would like. So I, I want to make a, a very clear distinction between the two. And even this, uh, what the Buddha calls Dhamma Chanda, which is the desire for the Dharma, is, is really much of a huge requirement on the path, is having this desire to be liberated and having this desire to practice is actually really good. And so when the, when the desire is unmet or isn't working out the way that we hoped or liked, then the greed and the hatred and delusion, they come in and they corrupt it. And it says, not only would I like to have this happen, but this has got to happen and it needs to happen now and I need to get rid of this and I need to have this. And then the consciousness, the desire in the consciousness becomes corrupted or tricked or kind of hijacked by the craving. And so again, this all brings us always back around to this experience of being vulnerable and 
oftentimes the reality that the desires that we have that are appropriate and wholesome, uh, that when we don't get them or they're not met in a way that we feel is right or appropriate, we, we feel vulnerable around that experience. And we don't like that. And so when we feel vulnerable, then we become vulnerable to craving. Because craving comes in and says, you don't have to do, you don't have to, this is a, totally, you don't have to feel this. And you go, really? Okay, what do you got in mind? Right? And then we get kind of swept into that. So again, the, the, the constant dance here seems to be this understanding of how things are and how things work and this much-needed quality of compassion, of being able to, to say, you know what, I'm not getting what I want and I actually feel disappointed and I feel vulnerable about this desire not having been met, but I'm actually going to stay with that experience. I'm going to allow myself to be with this experience and I'm not going to give in to the craving. And so there's a very subtle moment-to-moment -moment experience of this that you can see in your direct practice. And then there's the sort of big view, the whole your whole life view. And you can probably see a lot of examples and times in which this experience of craving has been um, detrimental. And to maybe offer you some step-by-step -step and sort of... So if craving turns into clinging, turns into grasping, turns into addiction, turns into suffering, where can we strike through? Where can we break the link? Where can we, with the sort of... I oftentimes think of the samurai sort of mindfulness. Where can I chop through that and get back to what's really happening? And so when, we, when we're sitting, we notice that something arises in the mind and we become identified with it. We become identified with this idea, this other place to be, this thing to become, this other moment to have. We become identified with it. Our attention goes towards it. And then this whole process starts to tease out. This whole psychological experiment starts to tease out. And so as we become identified with something and our attention gets drawn into it, the sooner we can get out, the better, because the farther down the rabbit hole we go, the kind of more invested we become and the more convinced that we become. And so the way that this works is we start to notice I become identified with, with an idea, with a concept, with a place, a thing to have, a thing to be, a thing to get rid of, all of the wide ranges of the way that this happens. And then it starts to become idealized. It, it, it becomes an idea. It becomes idealized in the sense of, ooh, this would be very favorable for me to, to have this or to get rid of this, this thing I become identified with. Now it becomes an idea, it becomes a concept, and it becomes ideal in the sense of 
it's starting to look a little bit better than what's actually going on right now. And so it, it's got a hook to a quality to it. It's got a, a sweeping us in. And so when we start to begin, pay attention to it, it becomes idealized. Then the imagination turns on, the creative imagination turns on, and it starts to become magnified. And so it starts to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Not only is it ideal now, but it's magnified. It's starting to become a little bit magnificent. And the more my awareness gets pulled into this experience, now, because it's taking more of my mental energy, now I'm no longer really in touch with my breath. I'm no longer really noticing the sounds anymore. I'm not really in the body. I'm not really in my emotion. I'm sort of taking birth into this other realm. The Buddha calls it papancha, mental proliferation. I'm, I'm becoming, this idea is becoming something now. It's actually becoming a possibility. A pretty look, good-looking possibility for me. And so it becomes magnified. And it starts to take on a plan. Oh, a plan that I'm, now I'm starting to calculate and figure out how I'm going to actually um, make this experience come into fruition. I'm going to uh, somehow arrive inside of it. And then this magnification, it starts to become proliferation where now I'm actually really thinking about it. I'm really, at this point, I'm really, really disconnected from what's happening. I'm really, really, I'm really in it now. It's proliferating and more thoughts are giving rise to more thoughts and it's becoming more magnified and becoming more magnificent and becoming more idealized. And now it's becoming much, much harder to get out of it because I'm so in it now that I've really lost out on the present experience. I'm basically not in the room anymore. I'm in this experience. And you think at this point it's difficult to break out, but then what starts to happen is we start to notice it becomes exaggerated. It becomes very exaggerated. It becomes very ideal. And we start actually to, at this point, we've probably been in it for, I don't know, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and now we're actually starting to create a belief system around it. We're starting to believe this idea as being a possibility. It becomes exaggerated in the sense that now it's starting to become actually really pretty unrealistic. And we start to really, really bend the reality around it. We start to think, oh, this is really going to be great when I do this. I totally have the rest of my life figured out right now. I'm definitely not going back to the breath right now. I'm having a major insight. <laughs> I'm fucking just right there. Oh, this is so good. Just need to keep thinking about this. And it feels pleasant and it feels good and it's exciting and, and it's become so exaggerated. Right? To the point where if you were to explain it to somebody else, they'd be like, you're fucking crazy, dude. Do you really think that you're going to be in the next Star Wars movie? Do you really think that Jennifer Lawrence is going to go out with you? I don't know if you have this. On, on, sometimes on retreat I have celebrity romance. 
And I started to think, I do live in Los Angeles. It's not totally out of the question that I would run into so-and-so at Starbucks. I mean, I don't know what you guys have been doing all day, but I have done some amazing things on my retreats. I have just really done amazing, amazing things that never happened. Right? And so the exaggeration becomes... And then what happens at this point is it just keeps going and it just keeps going and it gets more and more and more ridiculous. And it goes through, and it takes on a birth of its own. This whole idea, this whole conception takes on, uh, takes on dukkha now. It gets born and it goes through the process of old age, sickness, and death. And eventually, because you're just sitting here, you run out of, it runs itself, it runs itself out. It comes to an end. The movie comes to an end. And it pops out, and it's gone, and you're just back in the hall. And you're like, oh, none of that's happened. That's never actually going to, that was crazy what I was just thinking right there. That's definitely not going to go down. And then usually, what do we do? We give ourselves a good old beating for having done that. Be like, you came all the way to Thailand to fucking think about meeting some celebrity in a Starbucks in L.A.? And how they're, you're, you're going to move to the big mansion and never have to work again. That's what you did today. Right? Or whatever you did. Right? But the other thing about it, we have to be very careful because when this comes to an end or when we pull out of it and when we wake up to the fact that this happened, we really, in truth, should be celebrating. And maybe at some point along the way, right? It doesn't always... So I'm playing it out to its extreme version. And I'm sure you've played it out to its extreme version. But at any point in the process, we mindfulness usually will give you some kind of warning of like, it's getting a little crazy. Your story's really getting, you're getting out there. You might want to just go back to the sound of the cricket. You might want to come back on the retreat. You might want to breathe because this thing that you've cooked up is just fucking not going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen this afternoon. Right? And so you have probably along the way, the, the thing about it that's so interesting to me is, is literally the farther out it goes, the harder it is to unhook. It becomes more and more and more and more compelling. It's like, you know, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, because, you know, a lot of times we don't leave ourselves a trail, a trail of breadcrumbs to get out, you know. And all of a sudden you're just like, oh, shit, I'm like lost at sea. And sometimes we have to do, you know. You know, one of these sort of little events can kind of ruin your whole morning. Right? <clears throat> And so it's really, I think, actually really important and healthy to have a sense of humor about this as well. One of the things that doesn't show up a lot in, in the Buddhist teachings, which I think is a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a tragedy, but a little bit disappointing, and I try to bring it into my teaching, is that I think when we're dealing with all of this stuff, a good old-fashioned sense of humor is a really pretty good idea. When we, when we really can just see the insane notions and the exaggeration in which the mind can cook up in three to five minutes, you can just be gone. 
And we know that sometimes it's not just funny, you know, Starbucks uh, celebrity romance. Sometimes it gets really dark. It gets really like, you know, it starts to get into some of these territories around some of the shame or some of the self-hatred. And so it's not always funny necessarily. So when we start to consider this process of craving and how it creates suffering in the form of a conceptual mind and ideation and exaggeration, we really want to bring mindfulness into the game and really start to investigate these causes and see them as they happen and continue to unhook. And so as we do this, we start to, we really start to actually change the karmic momentum. And this is really important because for, for us psychologically, karma as a psychological, it's probably the most useful way to understand karma is through the psychology of it, is that by unhooking and letting go and, and getting out of the rabbit hole and coming back to the present moment and to let the story and the delusion and the craving go, is what you're doing is in future moments, your ability to do that now is going to greatly impact your ability to do that later. And so what you're doing is you're changing the whole course of your mind. And so it might feel like a tedious task at times, and it might feel like it's not going anywhere, but nothing could be further from the truth. You are literally shaping the nature of your own awareness as you let go of these cravings. So don't underestimate and don't minimize the value of actually getting back to your breath and getting back to the sound. Because every time you do that, to some degree you could say, and some people would say, every time you do that, you have potentially ended suffering that would have arisen as a result of going down that rabbit hole. So when people ask you, when you meditate, what do you do? You should tell them, when I meditate, I end suffering. What do you, what do, you do? Why do you meditate? I'm like, because I end suffering. That's what I do. I don't know what you do in your life, but that's what I do. I end suffering. And uh, that's just what I'm into. That's my thing. <laughs> it makes people more interested in the practice when you tell them that. So when, say, when you say, what were you doing? That must have sucked being in that meditation for seven days, no talking. What were you doing? You just say, I was ending suffering in every moment. That's what you say. And so we start to change the momentum around. So we start to investigate the causes. We start to see that it's something that we can do. It's maybe not as challenging as a task as we had thought it might be. And then we also really need to, again, we need to incorporate into the practice the empathy and the compassion for the experience of the unmet desires. And so we see that there's a lot of maybe loss and disappointment and, and, and some pain around the things that we wanted that were totally appropriate and totally important and totally part of our humanity to want and we didn't get. And so we need to 
really consider holding this with a compassion and an empathy. Because what that does is that helps keep the craving switched off. So we have to investigate the causes, we have to psychologically pull away from them, and then we have to tend to whatever pain is there as a result. Whatever the, whatever the pain that the craving was trying to get you away from in the first place. We unhook, we turn back, we empathize, we understand, okay, this is how it is, I'm actually really here, this is where I am. And as a result of this, of sitting in these long sits day and day, what you're really developing that people don't often talk about is you're developing a deep sense of patience with yourself. You're developing a, a deep sense of tolerance for discomfort. You're developing a deep sense of acceptance for the way things actually really are. You know, this, these retreats are no easy task for anybody. And so, just the tolerance that you've, and the acceptance and the patience that you've already generated in these days is going to be helpful for you for the rest of your life. You'll look back and go, dude, I sat in that building for seven days. I can deal with anything now. Fucking invincible got nothing on me. The world's got nothing on me. I'll just sit still and do nothing and be fine. Right? I can do that. I can do that because I've done it and I know that I've done it. And so when we start to undermine and we start to put an end to these delusional belief systems about how much better things could be, You know, we start to, and I'll speak about this in the next coming nights, as we start to develop a, a faith and a confidence that is unshakable. And uh, there's uh, confidence that comes from the, from the practice of the Dharma. That comes from the practice of the Dharma. It just comes. You can't even stop it. This confidence of a sense of, I can do this. And when, the, when the people would ask the Buddha about his dharma, he would say, he said, the freedom of my mind is unshakable. My mind is so free that you can't even shake me. That I have this verified, direct experience of completely understanding the issue at hand. And it's unshakable. The confidence, this word sada. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. I cannot be convinced otherwise. I cannot be convinced that there's another moment to be in because first of all, I know that I can't be in that other moment anyway and this moment will do just fine, thank you. And this becomes the experience of right view which is the first factor of the Eightfold Path. And so as we move out into the world as we take on these practices, we start to live into the right view, the appropriate view, the wise view, where we understand. Not because we read it in a book, not because we heard a Dharma talk that we agreed with, not because we think Buddhism is kind of cool and interesting. No, we know because we just know. Like you know your name. 
Like you know where you were born. Like you know the sun is going to come up tomorrow. That kind of knowing. And as we develop this right view, we continue to cultivate this right view and it starts to become, it starts to bleed into our perception, it starts to bleed into our worldview, it starts to literally bleed into our consciousness where we just start to just live from a place where we see the ground and we see more clearly. And we tend to what's in front of us. We tend to the people in our lives that are sitting right in front of us. We tend to the unmet desires that we have. We have patience and tolerance that we're heading in the right direction now. And the Buddha said of right view, he said, it doesn't, he also says that the Dharma is good in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. Because once you establish right view, once you're on the right path and you have the right view, you know that you're going to end up where you need to go. This is the power of right view. You know where you're going, you know where it's heading. Whether you've got one step on, whether you're just placing your first foot, your first step on the path, or whether you've been walking it for years, it doesn't matter because you're going to get where you need to go if you are on the right path. If we don't have right view, then we, we keep switching paths. We're like, ah, oh, do this and do that. And this is where the craving comes in and becoming and something else to do and something else to be. It doesn't go anywhere. It just goes around and round and round and round and round. So even getting a glimpse, or just a, a little taste, the Buddha also said of the Dharma that just as the ocean has one taste, the taste of saltiness, that the Dharma also has one taste, and that's the taste of freedom. And this Dharma freedom, confidence in this practice is unshakable. So I offer this this evening for your reflection, and I thank you for your attention.